honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time, and I, that's not a sustainable lifestyle. My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me. But I remember feeling kind of relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worth? I like to say it this way, great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? My name is Aaron Huey and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I want to give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. It was in fourth grade that I got, uh, went to the um, learning center and took a whole bunch of tests. And families who've listened to my podcast, you know, I came out of that and I was ADHD. I had learning disabilities. When a child is diagnosed with something, this identifier, this thing that we do to begin to tell the other adults how to connect with this child, how to intervene with this child, how to interrupt the child's behavior in a clinical mental health setting tends to begin to take on this, take over, take on the child's identity. And what Vaughn is talking to me about, what she's speaking about, what she is hell-bent on making sure we all change something very basic and very simple. And this is important for parents because you've taken your kid to the hospital, taken your kid to a therapist, and the therapist said, uh, your child's bipolar, or your child is ADHD, or your child's this. There's another way to talk about this. There's another way to relate to the child. That's what I'm going to let Vaughn Gilmore talk about. She's from... Uh, Menninger and I'm in love with their program primarily because I have a very very good friend who changed his life through their program and I'm proud of this program for the second chance that they offered him and of course he's he's one of my best friends and I'm so relieved that he took the the wisdom that they have the love that they have and embodied it and I, I get to see him again every single day. So, Vaughn, thank you very much for being on Beyond Risk and Back. Yeah, thanks for having me, Aaron. Okay. So, I'm not ADHD. Right. You have ADHD, and it's just one small part of you. But I'm an addict. You have an addiction, and it's just one small part of you. It doesn't define you. Okay. So, I love this. And I get how impactful this can be for a child. Because I told you before the mic went live, um, 
when I was told I had that that I have learning disabilities, I thought it meant I was retarded, and it wasn't ever really explained to me. Um, not because people didn't think I could handle it; it's just because it was still in the late '70s, you know. And so we're, this is this is farther along now. So. First of all, tell us how you got into this work, and now tell us what you're doing with this. Sure. So I'm the director for addiction services at the Menninger Clinic, and one of the things that we are really interested in there is using research to improve treatment and treatment outcomes. Um, and, and what a lot of the literature is telling us these days is that language um, perpetuates stigma and that language can be used to attenuate stigma. And we are working right now in our programs to change our language and how we're working with clients with substance use disorders because we know that stigma is one of the largest barriers to people seeking behavioral health and addiction treatment. And if we can use language as professionals to sort of reduce stigma and invite people into treatment to look at their substance use or look at their other behavioral health conditions in a, in a less stigmatizing way, then we want to sort of tackle it this way too. So what you're saying as a, as a mental health provider, what you're saying makes total sense to me. Um, and I can, I can honestly say and honestly will say is an easy trap for clinicians and counselors and therapists to fall into uh, because so much of our day-to-day -day work becomes like a detective trying to figure out what is this person dealing with how's it affecting their brain what's going on in their brain chemistry and we lose the human side so i want you to say language perpetuates stigma without sounding like a therapist because i understand what you said but i want a parent who's wondering how to translate this for their own home, is this, is this just strength-based therapy or is this deeper than that? And what, is, what does language perpetuate stigma mean in comparison? Yeah, I mean, I think it's stigmatizing for the individual. So for your parents that are listening, if you are sort of labeling your young person with, um, they're an addict, right? If you, that, that term specifically, we know in a lot of the research carries both implicit and explicit bias. And so for the parents and for the young person, using, uh, thinking about your child as having a substance use disorder as one part of what makes them a child as one part of what they're struggling with, as opposed to giving them this label that they may not even realize by giving their child that label, how it's impacting their interaction. So for example, uh, there's been research studies where they've looked at how using those language, that, that term addict to describe uh, patients impacts mental health providers very subtly so that they actually interact differently with those clients. And I would sort of think that might be similar for parents, that if you are thinking my child is an addict, uh, how does that change how you're treating them, how you're interacting with them, like you're sort of automatically jumping to conclusions, um, sort of mistrusting them, as opposed to thinking my child is struggling with a disease of addiction, but that doesn't define them. So talk about this, especially, and let's use something that so many parents are dealing with, depression and anxiety, mm -hmm. okay? Because uh, my kid's depressed versus my kid has depression versus what's even a better 
Well, there isn't. This is an interesting one oh. where we do it with addiction versus depression. We might say they have depression or they are depressed, but we never would say they're a depressed, right? We don't, wow. we don't say that. No, we don't. Um, and, and so they're a flu. Yeah. No, they have the flu. They're, exactly. they're dealing with the flu. Right. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now let's go through some of the things so that parents can hear literally you say the words that they should start to use for their kids. So at the beginning, I said, um, I'm ADD. And you said, you have ADD. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm an addict versus you're, you're struggling with addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, you're dealing with addiction. <laughs> I'm not a depressed. I'm dealing with depression, anxiety. Mm -hmm. How do how do we say that one? Yeah, they have anxiety. They have an anxiety disorder, right? Bipolar. They have a bipolar disorder. Oppositional defiant disorder. <laughs> That's one that comes with a lot of stigma and oh, assumption about behavior, right? Yeah. They they have ODD. They are not ODD. It does not define them wholly. You know, one of the ones that I think has been very popular is saying. Uh, borderline. They're borderline. Yeah. Clinicians, parents, teachers, everybody falls into the trap with something like BPD or borderline personality disorder of, of jumping to conclusions about what that person's behavior is oh. going to look like. And Borderline's really, like a death sentence. Yeah, and really defining them with that. But actually, what we know is that borderline personality disorder is a very treatable disease. Right, right, right. Uh, but when we use language like that that's really sort of negative in its focus, um, it can impact how that person feels about themselves and also how we interact with them. Okay, so talk about the interaction piece. What are some of the things that, that the research has shown that the, the, reaction, the interaction's changing based on the diagnosis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I can maybe talk a little bit about how I do this with my clients where they say, I'm not an alcoholic. Don't call me an alcoholic. And I say, you're right. I'm not here to call you that. If you find that label to be helpful and self-identifiable, great. Uh, but I'm here to talk about the problems that alcohol is causing in your life. And I'm here to talk about the fact that you have an alcohol use disorder. So, so I, I was going to say that later on, but you just brought it up. There was a long period in my recovery where calling myself an addict kept me accountable sure. to my behaviors mm -hmm. on a daily basis where I would be walking around a boring adult party because I wasn't high or drunk. And all of a sudden I look down and I'm holding a tumbler with a lime wedge in it, but I'm drinking seven up, but still I'm pretending. And I'm like, Aaron, you're being an addict again. You're acting like an addict. This is what addicts do. And you're an addict, mm -hmm. change the glass. So I'd go put it in a cartoon sippy cup or something and I would feel better. But it doesn't, those words, I'm an addict, I'm 22 years sober, it doesn't help me anymore. Being an addict in recovery does. So you're not saying that the client can't, you're not going to correct a client if a client says, oh, yeah. I'm an addict. And yeah. Okay. Yeah, and actually, what we also know from the research is that what is helpful language in an inner group, like in a 12-step program, that language can be very cathartic, can be sort of a helpful tool. But externally, that language can actually be really stigmatizing and harmful. So there's a huge difference between self-labeling and being labeled by other people. I mean, it's funny because in recovery, people even start to change the label from I'm an addict to I'm a 12-stepper. Mm -hmm. You know, like, why? what is the thing about identity? Why do we have to identify with something? What is, what is that? 
I mean, for a lot of people, using that terminology to self-identify is a helpful tool, like you just described. It helps them sort of label their disease and understand what's going on with them. But for some people, that's a barrier to getting into recovery. Because you're, you continue the phrase, I'm this. Mm -hmm. Or, or because there's so much stigma associated with those labels that they don't want to use it, and it turns them off of treatment. So at any point, does the therapist come in and actually address this and say, listen, you've been calling yourself an addict, and I'm not going to argue it, but I want you to consider something, and then introduce a new concept, or do you leave it completely to the to the patient. Yeah, it's really up to the client. We're, really, we're usually on the other side of it, you know, providing specialty psychiatric treatment. A lot of times people come in uh, with a mood disorder, depression, anxiety, and, and then we're sort of saying, and you also have a substance use disorder. And we're really trying to get them on board with also looking at their substance use. Uh, and if we sort of came down hard and said, you have an addiction, you have to self-identify this way, we would really lose people in that process. And if through the sort of course of their recovery, they find that uh, using a 12-step pathway and self-identifying is now called your addict is a helpful tool in their recovery, we support that 100%. If they don't find that to be helpful and it's too stigmatizing for them and there's too many negative associations, we're not going to fight that battle. Do you, once, once as an organization, you begin to make the change of how you're relating to the clients and how you're speaking to the clients, do you expect the clinicians in their clinical meetings to continue that behavior? Like, like do you want, are you trying as an organization to habituate this? Well, we are trying internally really to change our language based on what the research says, uh, while also still respecting the client's sort of uh, right to self-identify. And we would never tell someone, don't use that label if they find it to be helpful. If they come into a session and they say, I don't want to use that label, I don't find it helpful, then we would say, okay. But as a clinician, if you were talking to someone and I see a room full of therapists doing this, um, and someone says, you know, well, uh, you know, it, my assessment says so-and-so is an addict. Would everybody go, <clears throat> oh, oh, I mean, is this something that you guys are working and holding accountability with each other? Yeah, we're, we're, we, are, we are working on changing our language internally to sort of model it um, and sort of see if, and, and what we've seen over time is it is a better way to relate to clients. And then you're right, we have to hold each other accountable too in staff meetings, um, places where patients are not present. Okay, so now let's give a, a few tips to parents, yeah. okay, because they got a kid, mm -hmm. a therapist or a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist who's not privy to a little bit of forward thinking about this. Because, look, the truth is, is that the power of the brain and, and you know, you become what you think you are. You become what you think about. Yeah. What you focus on expands. And you're, you're literally saying, we're changing a focus. You're not this. You're dealing with this. So what are some advice for parents? And what are, the, what are some of the effects that you would like parents to be able to experience from changing their language? Uh, what things will they see? Yeah. So I think a couple tips for parents. One would be when looking at treatment centers or sort of for treatment providers to listen to how they talk about patients. Because uh, some of this is from a strengths-based perspective, but also 
sort of uh, not stigmatizing, sort of not labeling. So really just uh, look at their literature, talk with them, um, how they sort of talk about young people and their substance use disorders. Um, another for parents is really to pay attention to how they're thinking about their child right? Um, if you're sort of jumping to conclusions and labeling your child's behavior immediately, um, like what, what are you really doing and how is that impacting your relationship with them and your ability to support them? You should be holding them accountable, but if you're jumping to conclusions with sort of negative thinking and negative language about your child, you may actually be missing other things they're struggling with or what's going on. Okay. All right. We're wrapping around the end. Let's give some people some contact information. Okay. Uh, so we are, I am at the Menninger Clinic, which is in Houston, Texas, um, and my email address is bgilmore at menninger.edu, and that's M-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R. And if I'm a, I'm a parent wondering if my child is right, what are some of your demographics? Are you adolescent or are you yeah, adult? Have- we have both adult and adolescent programs. Our adolescent program is a two to three week comprehensive inpatient assessment for adolescents with substance use, behavioral health. Um, all of the treatment teams are led by psychiatrists. They include psychological testing from psychologists, social workers, and then on all of our treatment teams, we have a master's level addiction counselor. And from that sort of adolescent treatment program that includes a they may be referred on for additional treatment with us or to another step-down treatment program for behavioral health. Awesome. And like I said, families, uh, one of my very, very dear close friends had an amazing experience out there. And, and everything to do with how hard he worked and how hard he wanted it, but also everything to do with the, the people who were coaching him along and helping him along. So I got a big love in my heart for this program. Vaughn, thank you so much. Parents, you take care of yourself first. You take care of your adult relationships second. You take care of your children third. Because in that way, we do our best work with the kids. When we will talk again on Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility. And also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com.